There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Truth and Movies. Today, we have a different kind of origin story in the before he was infamous high school drama, My Friend Dharma. And as part of the Dharma fan club, I point myself the Minister of Propaganda. <laughs> then, we're off to France to attempt to solve the cinematic puzzle that is Arnaud Desplechon's mysterious Ishmael's ghosts. And then Film Club and its killer clowns from outer space in Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Why here? Why now? Why clowns? It's all coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. It's Michael Eder here again. Sitting across from David Jenkins, head on show at Little White Lies. David, welcome hey, back. Hey. And Elena Lazic. Hello. Hi, Elena. I'm ticking off the bingo card of Little White Lies <laughs> podcast guests here. Yeah, this it's is great the best to time. finally be on together. Yeah. Um, this is the top trump, surely. Is it really? <laughs> I mean, maybe uh, some of our listeners can send in with their, you know, their top trumps. <laughs> oh my god. Ra- ranking Little White Lies podcast. Um, um, yeah. What would, yes. what would the People. categories be? I wonder. I don't think this is... We shouldn't no, even get into this. It's too stressful for me. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> uh, but speaking of listeners, we have had one bit of feedback from the last couple of weeks from uh, Lewis Allen uh, saying, Hi team, uh, I knew you were busy in Cannes, but could I get your thoughts slash review on Deadpool 2? I think unfortunately, since all three of us were in Cannes, none of us have had a chance to see Deadpool 2 yet. Yes, uh, not got around to it. <laughs> hey, That's right. I'm fully intending on seeing it this weekend if yes. I can. Next long haul flight, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll lock that down. For yeah. You. However, Hannah Woodhead did review for Little White Lies. That should be on the website, yep. lwlies.com. You can see what she made of the film there, and maybe we can feed back down the line if we ever get around to seeing it. Indeed. But now <laughs> we need to talk about Jeff, don't we? Oh, yeah. This is uh, My Friend Dharma, uh, adapted from the graphic novel that follows the pivotal final high school years in the life of serial killer Jeffrey Dharma, during which he became something of a mascot, muse and local celebrity for a group of smart-aleck fellow students who set up a Jeffrey Dharma fan club. Dharma, where have you been? Uh, I think we should form a Dharma fan club. What? Yeah, like, I mean, there's just... There's only so much time left. I think with you as our fearless leader, we can we can really disrupt this school. Go out in style. Yeah, and infamy. Yeah, and if we don't, I'm gonna have to do something crazy. Like kill the Pope. <laughs> Dom, I already drew you, actually. 
This one's called Dahmer and a Bag of Groceries. <laughs> what do you think? And as part of the Dahmer fan club, I point myself the Minister of Propaganda. <laughs> so that's my friend Dahmer. Elena, you reviewed this for the magazine um, and you spoke about it quite highly. Mm. Um, what do you think sets this one apart from the usual sort of serial killer film fare? What really, really impressed me is that obviously this is like a sort of origin story. So the the thing that sells it is like, oh, why did he become a serial killer? What what happened to this man to become this monster? You know, and the film like is based on trying to answer those questions, mm. but obviously they're not. If these questions were answerable, there would be no serial killers. Like we we, mm, we would have found mm. out a way to stop them. And so that's why it's like it's just incredible the way the film is like a balancing act between uh, nature and nurture because mm. there's a dimension of Jeffrey Diamond that he's just like born this way and another where really like unpleasant things happen to him and this and and it's like you can't pinpoint one of the reasons as a reason why he became a serial killer but obviously the film is based on the graphic novel by one of those friends that's in the film mm-hmm. who treated Dahmer in a in not an amazing way. Kind of, it's not bullying, but it's mm. kind of like a similar kind of like mistreatment and like just making him like demeaning him. It's that sort of that strange. Maybe it's a particularly uh, you know masculine trait around that age where you have these um, boys who are too smart for their own good mm. and they think that it's disrupting the school by doing some crazy weird messed up stuff. So yeah. they get this guy who has. You know, he, he, what is it that he's doing? He's sort of it's he like, like a simulates like palsy. Palsy. Yeah. He has these they refer fake to it as fits, spazzing, spazzing mm. in the sort of nineteen seventy eight term, yeah. uh, very out of date term. But um, it's sort of having these fits in public, in in school, and then later at a shopping mall. And to them, it's hilarious and so cool and different. But what they're doing is promoting and further sort of pushing Dharma down this route towards isolation and mm. away from socialization. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's just really perverse but I just really think it's amazing to have this guy who did this actually write a comic book about it I mean a graphic novel mm. and then make it into a film yeah. that doesn't either excuse him nor you know expunge him of all responsibility like it's just such a, a tortured like story and, and mm. when you watch it it's, it's just you, you first it starts oh it's, it starts the film starts with all these really amusing references to the stuff that we are told that like, serial killers do like all these torture animals mm. and like and, and all like um, dialogue that in retrospect when you know that he's going to be a serial killer is just really funny mm-hmm. and I think it's all done in purpose because it's like oh god this is like a bad because serial killer and you get all those little things that you know is going to lead to someone being a serial killer but then it stops being funny because like it's not just that and it's, it's actually he was a real person mm-hmm. and you really you, you get out of the myth thing and more into like this was a person that no one really understood ever and no one will ever understand and because it's impossible to understand those instincts and it's just it gets really really moving mm-hmm. and, and, and really scary like I was just terrified by the end of the film because I read a lot about serial killers to the point where I'm not scared reading it about reading about them anymore like I'm reading this book about Ted Bundy at the moment right that's really fascinating and I've lost this like kind of primal fear of serial killers which the mm-hmm. first time I did read about them I was like terrified and by the end of this film it was fully restored to a degree that I was like almost I was feeling sick in the cinema and it was I mean that's that, what else do you want from a serial killer movie you know exactly David how, how did you Go with this one. That's interesting. I think I had a slightly different reaction. I, th- I thought it was a pretty impressive film, but like, I didn't really get on with the idea of like 
this idea of retroactively looking at the, the man he became and trying to sort of answer some of the questions that we might have about how that character was born. Um, it, it, it does like this idea of like ticking off this kind of list of things mm -hmm. like he did this, so this would have led to this and mm -hmm. he did that, so it would have led to that. And like, you know, foregrounding this idea that he was, you know, there's a sequence where I think it's a pretty kind of silly sequence actually where they go fishing Oh yeah, and yeah. they're like, we're only going fishing if we throw the fish back in the lake. Yeah. And then as soon as they catch a fish, they're like, okay, Dharma, chop the fish off the line and throw him back humanely. All that he does is grabs a knife and just stabs yeah. the fish. That's the and one it... sequence in the film I didn't like because uh, from everything I've read, that's not how he would do it. Mm -hmm. Like he, in the film, it's presented as like an impulse he can't control. Mm -hmm. And that's not how it works. Like the, it's impulses that we can control. And Jeffrey Dahmer was notorious for getting drunk before his killings because he couldn't kill when he was sober. Right. So this is clearly like not... And he would this strangle is not the way his victim. He would basically, yeah, strangle his victims in a kind of more discreet fashion yeah. before he would do the, the really awful stuff. Yeah, he was like a, a bit of a coward with, in that yeah. way. And so that, that, didn't, that one sequence actually is the one thing I didn't like about the film. But, so. it, but, it, <laughs> but I, I guess it's... I think the framing, though, is quite interesting and this idea of John Backdurf who is, I mean, maybe you'll be able to confirm this, but he's yeah. quite a kind of famous comic book artist. In his own way, yeah, he's had a few graphic novels that have been very well regarded, but this one did put him on the map internationally. Mm. It's kind of looking at this idea of, you know, he's asking whether he was instrumental in, in actually almost like fast-tracking this serial killer to the place that, that he ended up. And I don't know, there was bits of it where I feel that he's almost trying to say that yeah, my friend Dharma, I'm the guy behind Dharma. If it wasn't for me, he wouldn't mm. be this famous mm. folk legend, like, you know, this sort of horrible, horrible person that we all know for these reasons. And that, you know, he does it in a way that's not ever, you know, he's not apologetic. I almost feel that I wanted the film to be more about him than mm. Dharma. Mm. Yeah. Because Dharma, we know, you know, like, I mean, although Dharma is the obvious interesting character, it, it the idea of having this guy this person we know in the orbit that we can almost project onto and like you can see him built you know his interaction with him more i don't know i thought Durf was more of a kind of secondary character yeah, in the film yeah i think nearly all my problems with the film are problems of adaptation the book which i would strongly recommend reading mm -hmm. is has a whole extra level to it of, of this this sort of troubled tr troubling memoir from the point of view of in 1991 when the crimes came to oh, light wow. years later Durf and his friends are like, you know, uh, he gets a phone call from his wife who's working at the local paper and says, you went to school with this guy who's killed 17 guys. And Dharma wasn't even his first impulse as to who that was out of the weirdos in his year. Oh. So he then had to go through this whole thing of, who was Dharma? Oh, God, I remember this fan club and goes and talks to his friends. And that's the sort of frame for this, for the book, which you lose in the film. And so some of those searching, questioning in, you know, uh, instincts in the film of whose fault was it? Did this lead to it? Is it because of a broken home? Is it because of uh, a sort of latchkey kid generation where no one was looking after the kids? Was it drugs, mental health, alcoholism? All of that just seems to be presented quite kind of straightforwardly in the film, whereas in the book it really is just trying to search for answers oh, through wow. memory. Um, and then also the film plays so much with irony all the way through, as you say, Elena, with, you know, did this lead to this or did we almost miss out on... There are certain sequences towards the end where I think it's pushed to a dubious level, mm. where it's the shadow of what he will become in these contexts. 
Um, but that's not there in the book. And it's also in that adaptation, they adopt a different genre, which is sort of freaks and geeks, Judd Apatow, <laughs> 1970s high school comedy in a way, which doesn't play out so well for me. I tell you what, one element I did like, actually, that you just brought up. One thing that I'm, I'm very negative on in movies in general is when you have like bullies mm-hmm. and that they're very sort of self-consciously bullying characters and they're shown in, in sort of very black and white shades mm. as the evil characters, the dark characters, the people who are kind of causing another character pain and suffering. Whereas I think what this film does is it's a very uniquely credible version of what bullying means mm. and how it's really insidious and the people who are doing it often don't know they're doing it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it can even double as like, you know, what they think is friendship, mm. yeah. you know? And um, and just that idea of like Dharma himself maybe not even knowing whether he's being bullied or not, but kind of sensing it, mm. like that he is this figure of fun and that although he's in their group and, you know, he's their mascot in a way, there's always a sense throughout the film that he's kind of like, I know what's happening here. Mm. But it, it, and the bullies themselves too at some point. Exactly, yeah. Which is really tragic. Yeah. But to go back to your thing about how it should focus more on Bagduff, I think we have to mention that Alex Wolf as John Bagduff, so Duff, is just d- d- incredible to me. I, I, I'm obsessed with this guy. I think he's incredible. Mm-hmm. I just saw him in Hereditary as well, which is amazing. And I think he really brings uh, so much of what you say is missing in the film, which is uh, uh, more places more in, in line with this character I think the way that they don't because he's so amazing but I think the way that we don't see much more of him than just oh he's this guy and he's kind of like he can, he can draw and he's kind of like the leader of his gang and he's fun and he's a very charismatic guy I think it's just like because he's played by uh, Alex Wolf as well and because he's, he's just really well written in my sense it's like we don't need to need no more of him because he's just a normal kid mm. and like I feel like we get so much of what he's like just from this performance and from the few lines we get from him, a few insights, I just feel like it, w- it. It's like we don't need to talk more about him. Like I feel there's so much already of him in the film, and the way, and I and I, I don't agree with you that the film is like not apologizing because when you've got the sequences where Dama is doing the you know doing a Dama where he's like uh, simulating like a sp- 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 what do you say spazzing out spazzing out whatever. Uh, there's a moment where it gets really uncomfortable, and I was on. I was. I couldn't believe that this was in the film. Mm. That there are these sequences where he's doing that in public, and everyone's it, it's just so uncomfortable to watch. But also, everyone in the film is really uncomfortable, and it's just a horrible thing to witness. And it's so depressing and sad, and so dark. And I and I don't. I think in that sense, the film is really putting some of sort of blame on the Bagdaf character and on, on all those kids who let that happen and used him and and then. Once it got too anno- annoying, they just dropped him and never even apologized. So yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think that he gets off the hook completely. It's it's a it's a good performance, and also it feels this film is quite um, shrewdly cast. Mm. Both Alex Wolf and um, Ross Lynch, who plays Jeffrey Dahmer, are both former Disney stars or yeah. Nickelodeon stars. Yeah. Um, and this is sort of their sort of adult movies. And just looking at the films reception in the states in particular you have a lot of fans out there who yeah. followed them from their tv years and they're going to go and watch this film mm. and i wonder what how that's going to play yeah. out for them is this the hashtag relatable jeffrey Dahmer movie <laughs> I, I looked up my friend Dahmer hashtag on twitter like a few months ago and there were all those teenager girls being like oh my god it was so scary <laughs> ross, ross lynch is sort of a, a good looking jeffrey yeah, Dahmer, yeah. really 
Well, yeah, I guess so, yeah. But like they really made him like miserable. Yeah. Oh god. It's quite a good limited performance that he gives yeah. as well. How do you, what do you think about that? Even? Oh no, I think that he's very kind of I mean, there's almost the kind of shades of Napoleon Dynamite in there. Wow, yeah. Like what, <laughs> I hadn't that, seen that. That, that it's kind of, that, that there is something kind of, like just an emotion chip that's missing there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like, although on one side you've got like these, you know, scenes of family strife and and issues at school and his kind of obsessions with certain people, mm. he never shows any... You know, he has this kind of mm. blank-faced attitude to everything. Yeah, he's been numb for a long yeah. time. Mm-hmm. But I really like how uh, at the very end you got this incredible scene with uh, Alex Wolf in the car. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to spoil well, it. Let's not spoil I'm it. not going to spoil it, but there's a scene, and you really realize that okay, Jeffrey Dahmer has problems, but like everyone has problems, and no one uses them as excuses to kill people. And it gets really like my my blood just went cold. It was amazing. <laughs> So should we throw some scores at this, Elena? What, what do you think about this film? Oh, uh, <laughs> probably, uh, probably like three because I was kind of scared, and mm-hmm. the look of it is so—it looks good, you know. It's mm-hmm. a very polished, like, teen movie. So I was a bit terrified of that, and also just the whole concept of having this guy write about this—I was a bit like suspicious. But then I'm probably five. Like, I'm gonna rewatch it like really? so many times. David, I probably say yeah, similar three. It looked like a kind of solid american indie film mm. that covered ground you know comic mm. book links as well it was, you know didn't really sort of float my boat in that sense mm-hmm. um and then probably like uh, i would say like high threes right across the board it, it it was it didn't quite kind of reach a level that you know really got me but i thought it was a kind of interesting little film yeah i'd probably say i had read the book beforehand so i was really intrigued mm about how they would do it so quite a four in anticipation but then these these little issues i had knock it down to maybe high threes as i as you said david but re-watching it as i did over the weekend they still bugged me <laughs> so i'd recommend reading the book instead i'll read it soon then please do mm-hmm. so that was my friend dharma up next uh, ishmael's ghosts so ishmael's ghosts following a filmmaker whose life is sent into a tailspin by the reappearance of his wife, Marion Cotillard, 20 years after she disappeared. Uh, the Little White Lies Review said, where most contemporary films could stand to lose an hour, this latest could use an extra one. Davey, is that true? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that that's been said because uh, when the film originally screened in Cannes in 2017, it was screened in a truncated version where I think he had 20, 30 minutes cut out of it already. So I actually interviewed him there and he talked about that and he said that, you know, he had a longer version that it was completely down to the producers which version gets seen in what place. And I think he wanted this longer version to be seen. I mean, I guess it is in the sense that, as with all of Deplachan's films, for those who've seen them, they're very rich and they're very kind of... He focuses on dialogue and conversation and sometimes where the story is going doesn't fall into the background but kind of like almost sort of meshes into the whole kind of texture of the film Mm. so sometimes you're watching these films and certainly the ones that are more kind of plot driven are some occasionally a little difficult to follow i mean i think he made his name with these very sort of talky family sagas like kings and queen and um, christmas christmas tale and he released an amazing film last year called um, My Golden Days, which was kind of autobiographical film. 
Um, and yeah, this one is with Matthew Almerick, who mm-hmm. is one of his kind of, you could call it his muse, his um, yeah. his alter ego. His seventh, sixth collaboration. Um, and, yeah, and, and in this one, it feels like the most kind of direct crossover because mm. he plays a filmmaker and the story is that he is sort of ha- having trouble making this kind of re- quite bizarre sort of John le Carre style mystery detective thing, like political sort of undercover spy thing. About his brother. About his brother. And um, the, the making of the film kind of goes to pot when his old lover who left him Playboy Marion Cotillard just sort of like literally walks back into his life while he's on holiday with his his current wife who's played by Charlotte Gansborg. And then he, the sort of second half of the film is him kind of his brain exploding almost where he he, <laughs> he, 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 uh, he goes back to his family home. Um, in fact, maybe you could tell like all of Amor, um, Deplachan's films either take place in or reference or involve a visit to this place called Roubaix. 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 Um, I'm not sure what that is. I think it's outside Paris. I think it is. Yeah, it's right. like northern, northern yeah. sort of suburb of Paris. Yeah. Is there anything like? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's his like childhood. That's probably yeah. That that, that mean that's probably yeah where he comes from. That wouldn't surprise me because it's quite. Uh, I think it's quite like a uh, not bourgeois but like residential area mm-hmm. where people have houses there. So yeah. So he goes back to this big old old mm. house. Um, you know, starts to do all these crazy things involving mm. guns and having big arguments with the producers. Um, <laughs> and I mean, although that's that's the kind of gist of the plot, it's actually, I think the sort of beauty of the film is all about the kind of the dialogue, the, the exchanges, the acting. It's quite a kind of strange film. It, it's, I think he's referencing Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo mm. in that it's got kind of the idea of doubles and the idea of not being able to sort of let go of the past and you know obsessions being brought back to life through images and and things like that and but it's in a it's almost a kind of i would say like lightly experimental riff on that idea well even laying out the plot as you did we're, we're almost making it seem like a more conventional film than it is because even in the first half hour you've had this jumbled up uh, mix of perspectives of films within films. You start with the film within the film, and then there's Charlotte Gansborg as his modern-day lover, um, telling almost first-person recollection of how they met. And it's very puzzling as you go through. There's a scene later in the film where he's planning out the convoluted plot for his thriller, and it's all connections within connections in the attic of his house. And that's kind of what we have to do, right, to figure out what this film is all about. Mm. Um, Elena, did you enjoy this as as a puzzle? Um, I think I enjoyed it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't. Re- I don't think I understood everything, but I was weirdly moved by some aspects of it, especially the Charlotte Gainsbourg character, because she plays um, his uh, current uh, girlfriend, mm-hmm. and then she's confronted by this woman who who didn't just leave him; but she just disappeared overnight, and mm-hmm. no one knew where she was. Even her dad didn't know, mm-hmm. and everyone's ghosted. Been- yeah, she uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, and no one knew wh- where she was or if she was alive or anything. And so when there's this thing where this woman comes back and obviously he's got really strong feelings for her still, even though she was gone for twenty years, um, it's just very moving because she's also this character who uh, there's this scene where she talks about herself and her life and. She's like this woman who was always dating guys who who either were married or or didn't want to commit, and then they would leave her, and then she finds herself in her 40s, and she doesn't have children, and she she's she's kind of... She, she's not unhappy, but she had this... She's in this situation now that maybe is not what she thought she... where she, what she would be. And even though she's kind of, like, 
not the main character. She's she's very she brings some really like moving um, things inside this rather silly and weird story that mm. were really moving. But I think that's what he does in most of his films. It's like the whole construction is a bit weird and kind of doesn't make sense and just barely hangs together. But then in within that structure, you've got really moving details that are really yeah, beautiful. Those details didn't rise up for me, probably because of this <laughs> very intellectualized uh, upper layer. So many references, um, Lacan, James Joyce, Bob Dylan, Philip Roth. Mm. What, where did you fall on that, Davey? I mean, I just, move you? I just love that. I mean, because I think it's a real sort of personal imprint on the film. You meet Deplachan and he is just like as passionate about these things in real life and about exploring these ideas. I mean, like, and he's got this, he sort of draws from this really diverse palette of references as well. Like, I remember chatting to him and one minute he's talking about how much he doesn't like Henry James and then he's going <laughs> on about how important hip hop is and and <laughs> and um how much he loves Kendrick Lamar so i mean he's like really kind of plugged into all these different things and i think he's just a he's just this super passionate guy who's really into like art culture seeing what people are doing how they're expressing themselves i think he sort of tries to channel all of that into his movies and um and i think that you're almost not meant to understand what is being said, mm -hmm. but just like this idea that he is kind of creating these characters as a sort of almost like as versions of himself as like pieces of himself. Mm -hmm. um, but just going back to a point you said, I think this is, yeah, this is definitely, I mean, the one thing that he manages to do for me, which I think is probably going to be different for most people is that although he, Depression has these very kind of heightened and almost, like as I say, like expressionist films that that seem slightly above reality in their kind of manicness and their kind of having these people talking about these very kind of talking about things in this very kind of literate way. Um, he manages to make things really moving just mm -hmm. very suddenly. Mm -hmm. Like he can just he, he can just turn things down or turn things up very quickly. And and I think in that sense he's got an amazing masterful hand as a director. And I think in this film. Where, as moving as it is to see like the um, Marion Cotillard character sort of explaining the, the lost time that she's had in her life and trying to explain herself. Conversely, you have Charlotte Gansborg, who I think is incredible in mm -hmm. this film as the woman who thinks she, she you know, she's on this kind of bright path and suddenly it's, it all kind of falls away. Mm. And the way that she sort of like dissolves into the background and the choices she takes are just like, I think like the most interesting thing about the yeah, film almost. I agree. Um, yeah, I think that watching his films is like being crushed by a giant wave. You don't really understand what's happening, but then some things stick when it draws back. Mm -hmm. and you, you, It's exhilarating. Yeah, it's ex you just kind of have to sit and like just do the best you can. <laughs> and mm -hmm. Some things will stick and I think that's how you're supposed to watch them. Yeah, and that's why I think that Matthew Amalric is such a perfect collaborator for him because mm. he's such a, uh, a ticky, nervous energy sort of oh, performer. Yeah but then can suddenly turn mm. and deliver a little moment of poignancy. Yeah. Uh, he's a character, but also be very big at other points as well. Mm. And this is quite a good role for that. Yeah, and he's like hypnotizing. So he's kind of like this uh, through line throughout this weird mess. You can follow him and mm -hmm. kind of hold on to him. Yeah, I find it interesting the Little White Lies review uh, sort of posits that he may never make another great movie because he's so scattershot as a filmmaker. Uh, do, do you agree with that, Davey? Oh, I'm not sure I do. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, it, I think it's amazing that he's he's allowed to 
keep do- mm. doing these movies that he does, these really idiosyncratic, personal, almost like folly type movies. And, and I hope he continues, is able to continue doing them. And I think it's like a testament to the to how great, maybe this is a, a conversation from the time, but like mm. the fact that in France, this is, this is the norm, you know, mm. like that people oh, are allowed right. to do this. Whereas yeah. like, you know, I feel that in other in other places, maybe even the UK, it, this kind of thing would probably be like frowned upon, and yeah. you know there would need to be like the commercial marketing hook there for this a film like this to work. Yeah. And I guess that having, I think this idea of a filmmaker who is able to make interesting personal statements, and then because of that, being able to attract big stars like Marion Cotillard and mm. uh, Charlotte Gansborg is a great thing. Like people who want to work with this this guy. And I think the same with like a f- filmmaker like Claire Denis, like mm-hmm. you know people mm-hmm. like Juliette Binoche and Ma- Robert Pattinson like want to work with her because she is like a great, interesting director. Mm. Um, but that's really interesting what you said because um, when I interviewed Anna Desplechin and Mathieu Merrick was there as well, someone asked, um, uh, "Are you going to make another film with Mathieu?" And he was like, "Well, my next film is set in North Africa. And it's all a black cast, so Mathieu won't be in it." Oh, right. So that sounds like an amazing wow. departure. Yeah. He does do these departures. I mean, yeah. he, he made a film called Jimmy P, which didn't come out in the, in the UK. Oh, yeah. uh, and it was in the, it was in Cannes and it got quite a frosty reception. And it was this very, very weird film with, <laughs> um, with Benicio Del Toro playing this Native American and um, Amaric in English do, doing a kind of psychoanalysis of him. And it was this <laughs> really bizarre, not, not good <laughs> film at all. <laughs> So like I'm slightly nervous when he goes off piste because mm. I because I like the math, I like the Deplachand film that yeah. he does all the time so much. So I'm sure we'll he'll make more of those. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not worried. We'll have to see. But for Ishmael's ghosts, shall we do some scores, David? Yeah, I would probably say I, I loved it. It's not my fa- probably not my favorite of his. It's it's so kind of scattershot. It's it's a, it's a little too scattershot maybe, but mm. like. I think it's just got a lot of amazing stuff in it, so probably like fours across the board for me. Okay, mm. uh, for me, probably like high threes and maybe a four in at the experience in retrospect. I don't know because it's kind of hard to remember all that's in this film. Exactly, like, there's yeah. just so much to to deal with. So um, yeah, like four, four, three, or something like that. Yeah, I'd say threes across the board for me. It's uh, still a lot to figure out and process about this film, mm. but I'm not sure whether I want to go back anytime soon. (laughs) But that was Ishmael's Ghosts. Next is Film Club. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's Killer Clowns from Outer Space, and we have a great trailer to listen to. It was a night like any other night. Then something happened. Something different. It's no shooting star. Why here? Why now? Why clowns? So that's Killer Clowns from Outer Space celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. Something of a, uh, a video shop classic, maybe. Would it, you agree, David? It is definitely one of those films that I remember in my youth seeing the the VHS box on the shelf. And I I think it was one of those films that, because you know in the video shop it was always by genre, Mm -hmm. so you'd have comedy and horror. And I I distinctly remember uh, in uh, my local shop, Video City, it would sometimes be in comedy and sometimes be in horror, which right, feels yeah, which yeah. feels feels appropriate appropriate for for the film. Because I, I don't th- this is it's a monster movie definitely, but it's uh, definitely a comedy monster movie. It's not got many scares in it. Would you say? It's not a scary film, <laughs> <laughs> but it. I don't think it's there is an even scintilla of it that wants to be scary. So. <laughs> Were the listeners scared? Well, yeah. So we got a couple of comments here. Um, I watched Killer Clowns from Out of Space with a few friends, really enjoyed, quote, bad movies, and thought this was one was a classic of the genre. I personally wasn't so keen and probably wouldn't have watched the whole thing if, it, if, I, if I'd watched it on my own. It was entertaining watching their reaction and comments to the movie more than the movie itself. Maybe. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and our friend The Futurist uh, says, Killer Clowns from Outer Space features great set design in a rather boring rip on 50s sci-fi drive-in movies. Highlight is the late 80s and early 90s sweaters, stonewashed jeans with big white sneakers worn by Grant Kramer. I concur with that. At <laughs> um, Concord on Twitter said, thought this would be awful, but it's actually quite inventive and enjoyable. Good choice. And Finley Kribolder said, speaking as someone with phobia of clowns, the general absurdity and campy nature of it made me forget said phobia, making it a much more enjoyable watch as far as clown films go. Pretty positive. That's, that's, that's a genre for the video shop, clown films. Yeah, the clown, <laughs> yeah. clown genre. But it is such an inventive film. This is the, the strange Kyoto Brothers, uh, three of them, uh, who made this. They were the special effects guys behind Critters, I believe. At least they designed those monsters and then were given relative carte blanche to follow their muse on this one. That's another subgenre as well. It's when special effects guys make movies. Yeah. I think, yeah, if any listeners know of any good ones. Oh, let us know. Or, or stuntmen who make movies as well. Stunt, mm. stunt coordinators making movies. That's, that's a whole yeah. world of pain. The I cogs think. are already whirring. Yes. Uh, but this is notably their only film. Yes. To date, do you think they should have made another one after this? Well, I mean, I watched it a couple of couple of months ago as a sort of when I when I look, uh, watch want to find want to find a random film on Netflix, I basically order it by time. So like oh, the yeah. oldest films first, and I and I always want to look at what the old films are. <laughs> and Killer Clowns of Outer Space was one of those ones where. I'd watched all the old films and that was the last one on the pile. And I was like, <laughs> what, the, what the hey? Yeah. And yeah, I was really, um, I watched it with my wife and she, she also was really impressed by it. It was like, 
you know, it is this kind of schlocky, stupid, like really kind of purposefully, epically stupid Very idea. dorky, yeah. <laughs> uh, but made with, with the kind of care and love and precision of like Kubrick. I mean, it's like, the, 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 there is, it's, that is the kind of insane core of this film that it is like this, this care that has gone into the design of every single different clown mm-hmm. to give it its own kind of distinct personality and visual look and size and, and style the set which is like so the the clowns you'll be you'll be surprised to hear uh they circumnavigate the uh, the galaxy <laughs> in a flying big top mm-hmm. which uh which which <laughs> la- <laughs> which lands on earth in this sort of sleepy town and uh plonks down in in a kind of wa- like wasteland and, all, and at, at this at this kind of point where all these like teenagers are necking and uh <laughs> They go to explore and obviously they, they kind of look inside and see that kind of weird things are happening. But by this point, the clowns are always already um, running rampage through the town. And uh, prior to their arrival, there's this kind of sequence where you're introduced to all the different members of the like single trait members of mm-hmm, the town. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, they, you, you basically watch them all be killed <laughs> one by yeah. one. It's really not a film that uh, lives or dies by its dialogue or its performances, I'd say. <laughs> but the design is really something. It really is. And you could you could do a I think you could do a proper art exhibition oh, yeah. on Killer Clowns. Like some some of the some of the act props. Mm-hmm. You know, the... There's one prop in particular, which is only in one shot, I think. It's when the, the lovers are chased by a clown with a gun that shoots popcorn. Yes. It cost seven thousand dollars to make. It was a working <laughs> gun. It's, and it's, it's like, terrible, but, <laughs> and, it, and, the, and the popcorn is a kind of like homing device for them for some reason. I don't know why. So, so what they've done is that, like, it, clearly in the making of this film, they've sat down the Chiodo brothers and written a big like, what do you call it? A kind of um, bubble graph, um, like a spider diagram. Yeah, like a spider diagram, and they put clowns in the middle, <laughs> and they've just put everything they could think of associated to clowns, yeah. like mm-hmm. every single thing, like. Funny walk, whistles, water, water spring, flowers, small cars, small cars, and they've just like let's take every single clown trait and then flip it into some kind of murder, murder device, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, and that's basically what the film is in its entirety. That's brilliant. And then you've got these two guys who drive around in an ice cream ice van. cream van, two brothers who are the sort of the, the town buttheads. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> buttheads is the exact right description for them. Uh, Eleni, you didn't get a chance to watch this. Has no. this convinced you either way? Oh yeah, I really want to see it now. The the thing you said about every clown device being turned into a murder weapon that's that's just what you want from a clown film. This, and this is the thing, it kind of it doesn't so much like intrigue and delight more than it wears you down. Like, <laughs> it kind of you get to the point where they go they they've gone through so many different stupid things that by the fact that they can keep going and fill a film up to feature length, you're just wow. you're almost thinking, wow. Impressed. That's really impressive. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say there are two that are legitimately inspired. There's one which is the shadow puppet sequence, and the one which is the ventrilo- ventriloquism sequence. Yes, and they're both actually pretty creepy and use interesting. Like the shadow puppet uses traditional hand-drawn animation for a little second there. It, it, there are some bits that are yeah. I mean, as I say, f- as a piece of craft, <laughs> this film is like you know ripe to be studied in film school mm-hmm. as, wow. a, as opposed as a, as an example of like the great things you can do with set design with special effects with animation mm-hmm. with matte shots with um you know just 
going and doing stuff with a load of garbage that you find in the, in the alleyway. <laughs> you know? It's like with makeup as well. Yeah, it's just it's a kind of it's all it's all design and no <laughs> no kind of finesse and story and emotion. We but. need to get to work on that exhibition clearly exactly, to yes. bring it all together. And clearly, the, the craft did impress people. The Chiodo brothers just went on to work contact on Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure he loves this movie. Yeah. I'm sure he does. Yes. I mean, they they worked on The Simpsons afterwards, oh, and wow. they worked on Team America: World Police. And interesting, interestingly, one of the brothers was an animator on Vincent, Tim Burton's first short, the stop motion animation one. Oh, wow. So clearly, they're well connected in that world, just not as filmmakers. Although they've been talking about a three-part trilogy or a TV series for years, I could imagine that happening. You know, <laughs> in this crazy TV world we're in <laughs> it's now, time. Netflix Feels will right. throw them hundred million dollars. Yeah, <laughs> but that was Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Um, David, what can we expect next week in Film Club? So next week in Film Club, we're going to be um, in the, uh, the episode, we're going to be covering... Uh, oh, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And also McQueen. Mm-hmm. And for the Film Club, we're actually going to explore the idea of your and my favourite um, supporting player, Jeff Goldblum. Oh, yeah. Um, and ask the question... Has he actually ever been in any good films? But Gasp. whoa, <laughs> yes, whoa, I know. I mean, but I don't like Jurassic Park, but come on. Whoa, 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 whoa! <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's an open ended <laughs> hypothetical, <laughs> but it, but we're actually going to cover one which we which is pretty good by okay. by all standards. The mm-hmm. Fly. There is a limit even to the imagination. Human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. Where our greatest creations meet our deepest fears. Something went wrong, Seth. When you went through, something went wrong. You are about to go beyond that limit. That hopefully is going to open up a discussion into the into the kind of acting world of, of Jeff Goldblum. That sounds fascinating. I think that's a good one. And already bubbling away with ideas <laughs> of uh, Jeff Goldblum movies to debunk your definitely. Your I hypothesis think there. I think anyone who, if you're listening to this and you have some ideas about mm-hmm. great Jeff Goldblum movies, in fact, one little thing that I will tell you about, which is something I want to see again. I remember seeing a film ages ago called Vibes. Have either of you heard Vibes. of this? No. No. Oh my god. <laughs> Vibes is Jeff Goldblum and it's like a buddy movie uh with Jeff Goldblum and Cindy Lauper. Wow. As, as like um that they've got like telekinetic powers of course. <laughs> and they are hired by a group of gangsters to basically uncover a kind of Mayan treasure. So mm. it's them traveling to South America together and uh, it's absolutely crazy wow um well it should i think it, it, it it's not so bad that it should be so obscure i think mm. mm-hmm. do you think if, if it's, memory serves is it available to watch anywhere i it sh- probably should be right. i'm sure if, if it's i i suspect it probably might be on like youtube or something mm. mm-hmm. like a video uh, rip on youtube yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but, but yeah I, that was a rental another rental from video city so <laughs> oh yeah um, working through your your history with video city there indeed <laughs> episode by episode but we you can uh, get in touch with us at lw lies on twitter and also uh, little white lies uh, lw lies.com slash podcast for any comments there um to 
uh, enlighten Davey with your favourite Jeff Goldblum movies. Um, I suppose just time to say thank you very much, Elena. Thank you. For being here today. And Davey, thank you so much. Thank you. And uh, I've been Michael Leader, and this has always has been a Seven Digital production. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.